Good evening, everyone. It's very nice to be with you tonight. It's been a while since we, I've had a chance to speak to you. Probably could bring this down a little bit. It's a bit hot. Bishop Ron is away. So uh, Jackie asked me to come and share. And last time I was here, we went through Ephesians chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesians, reveals to us a very important spiritual revelation. In Ephesians chapter 6, He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. And we talked about how that it's so easy for us to be distracted and, and think that our adversaries are other people, flesh and blood. You're the problem. And, and oftentimes, you know, it says we don't, our struggle's not against flesh and blood. And of course, the assumption is that that's the people around me. But also, we're flesh and blood. Each of us is flesh and blood. Last time I took a, a, a hand count, I asked you to, and everybody here attested to the fact they were flesh and blood. So I'm, I'm going to go on the assumption that that's true tonight as well. And, and yet each of us are flesh and blood. And sometimes one of the distractions of the enemy is uh, getting in trouble with other people, but also getting in trouble with ourselves. And he is very fond of saying, you're the problem. You're defective. You're deficient. You're broken. You're wicked. And he is the accuser of the brethren. And, and we often hear accusatory statements against ourselves. And if we're not paying attention and we simply let them land, we begin to think that we are the problem. And yet here it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spirits. And we talked about fighting spirits. So I want to continue uh, along the same vein, but on a different scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Because here again is another spiritual nugget, a, a truth that we find that reveals an aspect of the spiritual domain that we wouldn't know unless it was revealed. So this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let me first kind of describe a bit about the church in Corinth, give you a little background. Um, <clears throat> uh, Corinth, uh, a, a city, um, comes into view historically, a uh, very uh, powerful port city, uh, prosperous. And in 146 
BC, 146 years before Christ, uh, Corinth and Rome get into a squabble. Rome sends uh, a general by the name of Musimus. General Musimus. I assume his troops called him Musi. <laughs> but Musimus <laughs> went to Corinth and attacked it, uh, besieged it, took it and, and leveled it, and sold all the people into slavery. Just to tell everybody, you don't mess with Rome. So for a hundred years, from 146 to about 46, it just is not much going on at all. <laughs> but in 46, Julius Caesar says, I'm going to make that location a Roman colony. That when Roman soldiers either finish their conscription or they retire, uh, we're going to plant a bit of Rome, a Roman outpost, a Roman colony in Corinth. And once that was done, it opened up the door for commerce and the rebuilding and the restoration of Corinth. And Corinth uh, has an unusual feature. There is a big rock, a large rock outcropping with a flat top, which made for a natural defense and was a place that uh, people built houses and businesses and they built a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Yes. And uh, so Corinth began to really quite prosper. And just to give you an idea of where it is, if you can think of Greece coming down as kind of a protrusion into the Mediterranean, and you have the Adriatic on one side and the Aegean Sea on the other side, and to the south you have Crete and the Mediterranean, and you have towards the end of Greece, you have Athens, and then 40 miles west of Athens is Corinth. And Corinth is on this round territory, almost, almost an island, but it's not an island. It's a peninsula, peninsula, <laughs> and it's surrounded on three sides by water, and the water comes in, and it's only connected to land by a, a narrow stretch, four miles. And that four-mile strip, of course, is called an isthmus. The peninsula is connected to the mainland by an isthmus. The, the area was called anciently Peloponnesus. Everybody say Peloponnesus. Yes, yes. It's like uh, Peloponnesus, <laughs> like a good sneeze. Uh, also, also called Achaia was another name for the area. But Corinth was strategically situated right there at the isthmus and uh, in, towards the middle. And on one end, where the water came in, they had a little port. And on the other end, they had a port. And in ancient times, rather than have the ships go all the way around, they would take a shortcut because it was economically advisable. And there were a lot of storms and rough water uh, going the long way. So they would bring the ships into this port and unload the cargo, put it on a cart, a wagon, 
carry it the four miles and have another boat over here waiting and load it and then off they would go. Now in the smaller boats, they just had the whole boat get on a wagon and carry it over and sail on. Couldn't do that for the larger ones. <clears throat> so with that ideal location, it was a prosperous port. And uh, people from all nations would find themselves there, as seaports often do. And you had Greeks, and you had Romans, and you had Jewish people, and you had a lot of people from Asia and Europe. Uh, a real seaport city. And with the, the temple of uh, Aphrodite, uh, you have, uh, of course, uh, idol worship, big idol there. And uh, when, you, when you have that kind of worship, you have people who want to bring sacrifices. So uh, there were butcher shops right there at the temple. And you could uh, have an animal sacrificed and then have it butchered. And you could eat part, give a part to the idol. And Paul says, behind every idol, there's a demon. So you could honor that demon by offering them a part of the food. And if you're going to have a marketplace right there, uh, then you have to have people selling beverages, because what's a meal without a beverage? And so it begins, this, this area begins to be a real, well, Oaks Mall. <laughs> It has a bit of everything. And, uh, of course, the big question came, well, could a Christian go and buy meat from the guys that had dedicated the, the animal um, and the meat to Aphrodite and the demon behind it? And that became a question that Paul had to address because the Christians there were wondering, well, can we, should we do this? So... <clears throat> around 50 A.D., about 20 years after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and Paul was converted, he's now on his second missionary trip. Uh, his first one, he had spent time with his buddy Barnabas, but he and Barnabas, curiously, didn't get along on terms of whether to take John Mark with them. And so they had an argument and decided to go their separate ways. Barnabas takes John Mark with him, and Paul takes Silas, picks up Timothy on the way, and they make, Paul makes his second missionary journey, goes through Asia Minor, comes down uh, from northern Greece uh, through Berea, Thessalonica, and into Athens. And there he is in this great cultural capital. And uh, people are intellectuals, philosophers, and like to debate and talk about erudite, heady things. And so Paul goes into the synagogue and he preaches Christ. And he goes into the Areogapas and, and talks to the people there. And a few people are converted. But most of them are too intellectual to be receptive to the gospel. So he, he walks 40 miles to the west to Corinth. And there God tells him in a dream, I have many people here. Corinth, the port city, 
and you know the reputations of port cities. And, and Corinth was no different. In fact, some commentaries say, they used to say, uh, instead of saying people are profligate, immoral, um, perverted, simply to say they Corinthianized. That it was that bad and it had that kind of reputation. I grew up in uh, Vallejo, California, and uh, the Sacramento River kind of comes down and... Uh, on one side is the city, the other side was Maryland Naval Shipyard, Navy Town. And the street I lived on was Georgia Street, and it was flat, and you went over a hill and down to the water. And that was lower Georgia Street. And uh, so uh, that was the area known growing up as to where you really don't want to go. Lower Georgia Street. Uh, it, it's where a lot of bad things happened. Um, a lot of sin took place. Well, Corinth was a port city, and people had given themselves to the paganism and to the uh, behaviors in terms of pagan temples, uh, where there was a lot of sexual immorality, a lot of perversions, a lot of debauchery taking place. To Corinthianize. And so Paul comes there, and God says, I've got many people here. <laughs> Paul might have said, you do? <laughs> and he begins to preach the gospel first in the synagogue, and then even, even the, the rabbi, the, the lead man, and his household get converted. And a number of people in the synagogue get converted. Now the other people in the synagogue didn't like that. And there was a squabble took place, and then Paul went next door. Um, what was the fellow's name? Titicus? Titicus lived next door, and he moved his service right next door to the synagogue. Well, that didn't last too long until there was another uproar. They had fired uh, the, the head rabbi, because he went with Paul, and they hired another guy, and then he tried to get Paul... Uh, in trouble with the Romans, hauled him into court before the bima, the judgment seat. And if you go to Corinth today, they will take you to a big rock, and it's called the bima, the judgment seat. And uh, the uh, Roman judge thought it was silly and threw it out of court, which was a great advantage because now Christianity could be preached freely under the umbrella of Judaism. Oh, it's just a, one of those uh, groups. And so it did legally a great service. So Paul is there, and he's having great success in terms of preaching the gospel, and he stays a year and a half. Now, that's the longest he stayed anywhere. But there was, there was much uh, work and many people, and probably a series of house churches were, were used. Uh, when the group got too big for one house, they would add another house. And so he was there around 50 uh, AD and um, preaches, teaches, baptizes, and there is a healthy church there. And then after a year and a half, he says, now I, I have to go. And he goes over to Ephesus. Western Turkey. Time goes by. 
two, three years, four years. So, and, and the church continues to, to grow. And yet, in the house churches, some trouble begins. There are some people that come. We don't know quite from where, but they're saying that uh, they have more clout and authority and reputation and believability than the founding pastor of the church, Paul. Now, who could these people be? Well, all kinds of speculations. One commentary said they could be one or two of the, of the 70 disciples that Jesus sent out who would be able to say, we were with Jesus, and Jesus sent us out. He didn't send Paul out. He's a Johnny-come-lately here, and we have more credibility, and we're causing trouble in the congregations. And so Paul, in his first letter, offers some correction, and then these people began to criticize the letter, probably several letters, we only have two, but there were, there were others. And they begin to accuse him of saying, oh, well, when he's here, he's a Mr. Nice Guy, but he, when he's away, he writes these really tough letters. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 10, it puts it uh, this way. In verse 9, I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say... His letters are weighty and forceful, but in person, he is unimpressive. And his speaking amounts to nothing. <laughs> he's a bad speaker. He's not so hot. He's, he's not so impressive. And began to criticize and judge Paul and to challenge his authority as the founding pastor and spiritual leader that, that God used to call and to baptize and to pray the Holy Spirit into these people. So in verse 1, backing up just a little bit, this is all about Paul's defense of his ministry. But embedded in this is a wonderful spiritual gem. In verse 1 it says, By the meekness and gentleness of Christ I appeal to you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. I'm going to speak to you kindly. I, Paul, who am timid, in quote marks, this is what they're saying about me. Oh, I'm so timid. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, I'm a nice guy, I'm humble, I talk to you, I'm, uh, I'm kind to you when face to face, but bold went away. Oh, my letters are really tough and directive and corrective. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. So I can imagine the firmness in his voice as he begins to give direction here in terms of uh, those that were causing trouble in the churches. But he, he says here uh, that some people 
who think that we live by the standards of this world, that we're just other people, there's nothing special about us, that um, we're just like the world, just like everybody else, just another speaker, another person of some philosophy or some religion, that we're just like the world. People who think that we live by the standards, the ways, the cultures, the customs of this world. But then he begins to sharpen the thought. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Oh, so now we're back to the war theme. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, we wage war not against people, but against spirits. So Paul is aware of what's really behind the troublemakers, the spirit beings agitating and prompting and manifesting through the, the people that would be accusing and upsetting the congregations. But he says, no, no, understand our struggle, understand our war. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Well, the world, in that time, uh, Roman armies would have big shields and short swords and spears, and the, 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 the machines they had were catapults and uh, armor. And he says, well, our warfare is not like that. Now, there are some metaphors we can draw from that, but that's, I'm not coming to you, you know, in Roman armor with a sword and shield. We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power. The weapons we fight with have divine power, God power, spirit power to demolish to destroy, to level strongholds. We have spiritual power. And he's saying the, the, the church members and the troublemakers need to hear this. We're not like the world. We exercise and we have spiritual power capable of destroying things. We're dangerous, is what he's saying. Implication is, you better look out. Now, we have on, on, our, on our ministry team here, one of the members, a very lovely, petite little blonde lady that, that carries a heavy bag. And and most of us on the team think, well, it's just a big Bible that she carries around. But there are other members of the team that say she really has a 45 caliber pistol in that bag. I've, I've heard it said. <laughs> and, and that she carries, she carries, if you get the implication there. And the by extension, that means be respectful, be nice to this lady, don't mess with this lady because she is spiritually 
and in this case, physically dangerous. Now, I've never looked in the bag, so I really don't know. I'm just, just telling you what I've heard. <laughs> dangerous. Spiritually dangerous. That's what Paul's saying. He just says, I'm not carrying a literal 45, but I am carrying spiritual power and authority. And the troublemakers need to understand that. And then he, he begins to focus on how that authority is used and how it's manifested. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine, godly power to demolish strongholds, fortresses, castles, redoubts, thing, things that are set up to resist attack. We can destroy them. Now, what kind of strongholds? Ah, we demolish arguments. An argument simply thoughts put into words in conflict with other thoughts put into words. Two people arguing. In this case, Paul and later what he calls false apostles, troublemakers in the congregations. We demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension. A pretension is something that sets itself up above others. They pretend they are higher, more authoritative, more powerful, stronger. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So now he gives us a great insight in terms of uh, how we can live uh, under the, the state of a fallen world, fighting spirits in our lives that would introduce to us thoughts, arguments, pretensions that set themselves up against the way of God, the word of God, that we would exercise spiritual authority in governing our thoughts. And how do we do that? Well, of course, we have to know this in the first place, that as Christians, we have the opportunity and the responsibility to pay attention to our thoughts. Think about what we're thinking. Think about what we're feeling. Think about what's going on inside of us. Is it godly or not? And if it's or not, then we have the opportunity of taking authority over it and to demolish that stronghold, to take authority over that thought and send it away, to eject it, to expel it. We have that authority. Many Christians don't know that. That's why they get beat up so often. If we don't know the authority that we carry, then we are going to oftentimes be subject to the beatings of the bullies, the spirit beings that come to torment, to steal, kill, and destroy, to come and interject into us thoughts and feelings 
and then have us manifest those thoughts and feelings. And when people do that, we often say, just don't know what got into him. He was always a good boy. Yeah, we read that in the paper quite a bit. Or the person will say, the devil told me to go and to do this. And we have story after story where it's printed in the newspaper that the person tells them the truth that a spirit being told them and to do this crime and they went and did it. And we brush it off. We don't capture the reality of that. It's about paying attention to our thoughts. It's about screening them, observing them. What am I thinking? Is this a godly thought? Or is this a negative thought? Hmm. So I might be feeling sad. Don't know why, just feel sad. I wonder, is this, is this me? Is this flesh and blood doing this? Or is this a spirit doing this? I don't know. Well, let me experiment. Let me say, in Jesus' name, I take authority over the spirit of sadness and I command it to leave me. Go. Then I do a body check. Hmm. Anything different? Anything shift? Anything change? Hmm, not quite sure. Let me do it again. In Jesus' name, I command all sadness to leave me. Body check. Hmm, something's moving. I sense it. I feel something. Let me do it again. In Jesus' name, I command all sadness to leave me. And typically after the third, the fourth, the fifth time, the spiritual weather vane turns. And I, I say, you know, I really don't feel sad anymore. What's my conclusion? Oh, it must have been a spirit. Hmm. It wasn't me. It was a spirit trying to manifest through me. And when I challenged it and I said, no, all sadness be gone, get off me in Jesus' name, I commanded the spirit to go and it left. Now, sometimes they're a bit stubborn, but I've learned you have to be persistent. I match their stubbornness with my persistence. You will not dominate me. In Jesus' name. Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, now resident in me and in you, that when you surrendered, his spirit came and joined with your spirit, and you became a new creation. And Jesus says, now I give to you, I delegate to you spiritual authority. I give you divine power to demolish strongholds. I want to make you spiritually dangerous to the darkness. I want to make you a bringer of spiritual light to the darkness. And that wherever you go, you carry your weapons in a bag, 
<laughs> and people don't know whether it's a Bible or a gun. <laughs> but the spirits know, the spirits know that you have that kind of authority and that kind of confidence because you have exercised that authority on a regular basis, monitoring your thoughts and your feelings. You can change your thoughts. You can change your emotional state if you choose to. Now it takes practice. It takes determination. Sometimes you'll get a little spiritual pushback just to test your resolve. But you have God in you. He never gave you a fear. He never gave you a spirit of fear. God gave you, each of us, a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. And so we, we see here that the idea of taking thoughts captive, paying attention, what am I thinking? What am I feeling? What is my emotional state? Am I feeling anxious? Is that a spirit? I don't know. I will test it and find out. In Jesus' name, I command all anxiety to leave me. Go, get off, be gone, skedaddle, scoot. I was going to pronounce the German word, but it translates rather roughly <laughs> for those of you who speak German. It's on the freeways at the exit sign. <laughs> um, the idea is go. And that, that we can do that. We can have more peace because we take authority that is already resident within us. We don't have to say, Jesus, give me the authority. He has already given you the authority. Now, when you're a baby Christian, oftentimes we pray, Lord, will you take this burden away? Take this anxiety away? Take this sadness away? And Jesus, in his mercy, says, of course. And he says, be gone, and off they go. But they buzz around like pesky flies looking for an opportunity to come back. But as you mature, you pray, Lord, take this anxiety away. And Jesus is quiet. Lord, you get louder, you get longer. And he's quiet. And finally, Jesus says to you, why don't you do it? Why don't you exercise the authority? You're not a baby Christian anymore. Now you're more of an adult, mature Christian. I want you to take the authority and learn how to exercise the authority to function effectively in the spirit realm and to combat that spirit in, and then we would say, in Jesus' name, by his power and authority resident in me, I speak to the spirit of anxiety, I command, I don't ask, I don't plead, I don't say, by the by, would you mind? No, I command that spirit to get off me. And I will continue to command until my emotional state changes. I will be more persistent than they are stubborn. And I will find peace. 
And every time I do that, every time I exercise authority, I get stronger, they get weaker. And so we grow in spiritual confidence. We grow in paying attention to our thoughts and our emotional states. We monitor them more closely. Now, being human, we don't do it perfectly. We're not required to be perfect. But he does like us to be honest. <laughs> yeah, to say, Lord, uh, help me to pay attention to what I'm thinking. Help me to pay attention to my emotional state. And when it's not in line with you, then encourage me, remind me, Holy Spirit, remind me to use the authority that you've already given to me to command sadness, anxiety, fear, worry, depression, anger, rage, lust, greed, to go. All of the negative feelings and emotions. Why do we, first of all, assume, well, this is me. I'm broken this way. I'm this way. I'm dysfunctional. Why don't we first assume it's not me, but it's a spirit trying to manifest through me? Why don't we start there and clean house spiritually and see if there's anything left? Every time I've done it, swept the house, there was peace. Fear, go. Anger, go. Frustration, grow. Go. Peace, come. The great displacement principle, out with the bad, in with the good. Paul talks about the renewing of the mind. This is how we do it. We do it verbally by commanding, speaking into the air, the spirit realm, and the spirit realm is always listening. We command verbally the negative thoughts and the negative emotional states to get off of us, to not manifest through us, and we invite Holy Spirit, give us peace, fill me with love, joy, hope, positive expectation, something good. It's going to happen. And so right here, Paul reveals taking thought the captives because he can see that the troublemakers are merely manifesting through demonic spirits. They are manifesting through the, the human being. Verse 8 or verse 6, he says, And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience. He says, Folks, I'm loaded for bear, and I'm coming to town. <laughs> so you demons behind the people better look out, because I, with the authority of Jesus, will deal with you. Very bold. And he says, just like I'm bold in my letters, you'll find this time I'm bold in person. <laughs> because he knew his authority. Do you know your authority? Have you become comfortable with it by exercising it? Like they say on TV, try it, you'll like it. 
Well, Lord, thank you for your, your revelation, your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the authority that you give to us. Thank you that we can demolish strongholds, arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against you. Thank you for arming us that way, equipping us that way. Lord, help us to use these things that we might have more peace, love, and joy in our lives. That we fight not flesh and blood, even our own, but we fight spirits, and you, Lord, teach us how to win. And we're grateful for that. And we praise you, we worship you, we bless you, for you are a great God. And you want us to learn how to win in spiritual warfare and to be strong and courageous and bold, full of confidence, full of faith, full of positive expectation. We thank you, Lord, we praise you, and we worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen. So those that would like prayer, come forward, please, at this time.